with chocolate treats mixed into dark chocolate ice cream, the Tillamook Chocolate Collection is a chocolate game changer because the thing that pairs best with chocolate is more chocolate. Tillamook Chocolate Collection Ice Cream. Extraordinary Dairy. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox, and welcome to With Friends Like These. We have a fantastic, fun episode coming up, diving into a cautionary tale about libertarians and bears in New Hampshire. It is delightfully free of discussion about whatever is in the headlines today. But first, we have to talk about some headlines. The Georgia Senate runoff is January 5th. As a crooked media listener, you probably realize the Georgia runoff determines control of the Senate. And in that way, our cautionary tale is related. The disaster that happened when libertarians took over a small town in New Hampshire when they gutted social and city services in a way that made bear attacks a thing, well, that's what could happen in the U.S. if right-wing Republicans control the Senate. We probably won't have a bear problem, but things will get nasty and desperate. So, Adopt-A-State is back. Adopt Georgia, why don't you? You can support groups on the ground making sure every voter gets their voice heard by going to votesaveamerica.com slash Georgia. And as for this episode, I will be talking to Matthew Hongoltz Hetling, the author of A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear, The Utopian Plot to Liberate an American Town and Some Bears. As I said, it's a fun story with some rather serious implications. So... Stay tuned for a story about armed camps and donuts, super smart bears, and tax avoidance. Matthew Hongold's Hetling, coming right up. Matt, welcome to the show. Thank you so much for having me. Well, I'm excited to talk about your book, but I'd love to start out with an excerpt, which I understand you have for us. I do indeed. I've got it in hand. Um, uh, We're going to start with the opening of the book. Starting uh, now. During the summer of 2016, the firefighter became convinced the bear was watching him. Somewhere up in the tree line, for the whole summer, it must have monitored the old schoolhouse on Slab City Road, while the firefighter's tall, lean figure moved about below. How else could John Babiars explain the various times he would leave for a quick errand, only to find, upon his return, that his ramshackle chicken coop, aging apple tree, and makeshift sheep paddock had been de-chickened, de-branched, and de-sheeped, in broad daylight, no less. Even when the bear situation threatened to get out of hand, Babiars didn't call wildlife officials. Seeking help from the government was not his style. He showed me two chicken coops that held three dozen birds, a mess of colors indicating a mix of breeds, including bar rocks, prolific egg counts, bossy with other breeds, Buff Warpingtons, Big Eggs, Friendly Personality, and Americanas, Blue Eggs, Cold Hardy. 
but it was a rotating cast because the bear typically ate three or four chickens a pop. After the bear began coming through the walls of the older coop, the firefighter decided to condense all the birds into the newer, stronger coop. But one chicken, which had survived three or four bear attacks by that time, refused to be corralled. A few days later, Babiar still hadn't cornered the chicken, but one afternoon, as he crested the slope near a small outbuilding, he saw the bear, about 30 feet away, chasing the bird in tight circles on the grass between the old coop and a tractor. The chicken, a black Australorp, good layer, leads bears to humans, caught sight of Babiar's and rushed toward him, the bear right behind. As the chicken literally leapt into the firefighter's arms, the bear stopped, perhaps seeing Babiar's for the first time. Man and bear locked eyes. In the outbuilding next to him, Babiar's knew an AR-15 was leaning up against the wall between a filing cabinet and a paper shredder. But could he get to it in time? Don't you even think of it. He spoke aloud to the bear. Boy, my gun's right here, and boy, you're gonna, I'm going to drop you. After a long, tense moment, the bear ambled away, past the firefighter's target shooting range, and toward a swamp. It had no fear, Babiars noted, which is, which is, which is a problem. Other Graftonites, many with bear experience, use similar words when telling me about their encounters. The bear was bold. It didn't seem afraid. It watched them, thinking, before moving on, they said. What I eventually learned was that Grafton's first modern bear attack should have been predictable. And in fact, future attacks are more predictable still. This was not the last Babiars would see of that particular bear. He called it his Moby Dick. Somehow I've had this adventure with bears for many a decade, he said. Maybe it's my, quote, evil spirit. I don't know. Certainly something unusual seemed to be plaguing Grafton. Something with the power to pit neighbor against neighbor, freedoms against security, man against beast. But an evil spirit lurking behind Babiars' smile? That seemed unlikely. We looked at each other and laughed. And seen. <laughs> and seen. <laughs> I feel like I should do a spoiler alert and let people know that this isn't a horror novel, that it is not, in fact an evil spirit involved here, at least unless you think of it as the evil spirit of capitalism, which, you know, fair point. Um, this is a story about Grafton, Grafton, New Hampshire. I wonder if you could just situate us in Grafton. Where is it? What does it look like? Tell, tell us about the place. Grafton is only about 100 miles from Boston, uh, but it is a small remote rural town in New Hampshire. It's got roughly, you know, 800 to 1200 people, depending on uh, exactly when you're looking at it. Uh, there's not a lot in town to keep folks there. So they, they kind of tend to either uh, uh, sustain themselves through odd patchwork means of support, or they commute to other towns uh, where they can work a nine to five. And for those of us who don't know that part of the country very well, like I, 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 you know, am lucky enough to have been to New Hampshire every four years for the past 20 years. But, um, (laughs) 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 but, uh, for those of us who who don't know it very well, the the image I get from book in what I know of New Hampshire, it's, um, it's, it doesn't look maybe like, I, I feel like it looks different in Vermont than Vermont a little bit. It's a little more closely held. It's a little like the, the, the forest is like creeping in on you. Do you know what I mean? Like, um, 
talk a little bit about the actual lay of the land there, because I feel like it's important for this story. Absolutely. Like New England in general and New Hampshire in particular is one of the only places in the world that went from kind of like OG old growth forest to complete sheep pasture and then went back to forest again. Um, so like, you know, they had this massive agricultural economy based on traditional farming practices that then migrated out West, uh, when people started, uh, conquering the Great Plains. And so then like, uh, over a period of, you know, many decades, the forest kind of like crept back in and rewilded, uh, New Hampshire and, uh, you know, in some ways, New Hampshire kind of like returned to a state of virality, uh, and, became this kind of heavily forested place again, where you once had this kind of quaint New England look of uh, stone-walled pastures and uh, churches and farmhouses, uh, but that now is essentially uh, a new form of wild. And what drew you to Grafton? Was it, was it the bears? Not initially. Um, I actually uh, was working for a small regional daily newspaper called the Valley News. Support your independent journalism, uh, your local news sources. They're important. Um, And uh, I was there doing uh, called to Grafton to do a kind of routine story about a uh, woman who was having a difficult time accessing her VA benefits. Uh, she, she was disabled, living in her house. She couldn't get her house uh, equipped with uh, accessible equipment. And she was battling with the VA to try to get uh, to the point where she could, like, enter her own bathroom. And while I was there, uh, you know, just kind of, like, chatting with her, she had a bunch of cats. And I like cats, so we were kind of chit-chatting about the cats a little bit. <clears throat> and she said. Uh, yeah, you know, I used to let the cats outside, but that was before the bears came. And I was like, huh, well, I've never heard that particular arrangement of words <laughs> a bit before. Uh, uh, forget the VA. That really seems very boring. Uh, what, what do you mean about the bears? Uh, and so she started to talk about this um, bear problem in her neighborhood and in her town uh, where the bears were bold and unusually aggressive. She had had uh, multiple harrowing encounters, including one in which a bear had burst from the undergrowth just a few feet from her and snatched up two kittens and uh, taken them off a short distance and eaten them uh, like, like within her sight. And <sighs> yeah, it was like horrific and um, gruesome. Uh, and that was uh what got me to start asking about bears in this town. Now, did the bears naturally lead to libertarians? Because the name of the book is A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear, which, ha ha ha, yes, funny. And you've just told us about the bears. So when do the libertarians enter the story? Like, it doesn't seem like a natural connection to me. Yeah, that, that was kind of like one of the funny things was that for, for me, the story was the bears. And then I kind of like slowly got this, uh, dawning awareness that the unique bear situation was due to their unique libertarian situation. 
Uh, but in fact, you know, the, the, the causal set of events was reversed. Uh, before the bear problem really got out of hand, uh, the libertarians in 2004 began something in Grafton called the Freetown Project. And they were basically trying to solve a problem that was facing the national libertarian community, which is that libertarians have never been in charge of anything, right? Like they love to talk, uh, but they've never had a nation or a state or even a town that's been run by libertarian values. And they thought, you know, God, if, if we could just have this one utopian community, that would be like our shining jewel, right? <laughs> uh, uh, we could showcase to the world how awesome libertarianism is. And um, they didn't have the money to start their own community. And so they came and took uh, Grafton's community and tried to turn that into a utopian free town. So the people that the, the, the Freetown Project you mentioned, who were the people behind it? You know, they wanted to found a, a purely libertarian government on this very small scale. How did it come to Grafton? Yeah, so basically um, they didn't choose Grafton in a vacuum. They first decided that New Hampshire was perfect because uh, of New Hampshire's unique tax situation and its um, long history of fighting against things like seatbelt laws. You know, there's that real kind of spirit of individual freedoms and liberties in Grafton, um, or, you know, in, in New Hampshire in general. And then uh, a group, uh, like some advanced scouts of libertarians uh, wanted to be kind of like a, the new founding fathers of the Freetown. And so they scouted dozens of towns in New Hampshire looking for the one town that had everything. Uh, so they needed cheap land that they could come in and buy up uh, and live on. And they were also really interested in having no uh, zoning laws. Uh, so without zoning, there's an opportunity to build houses that don't have to conform to safety and fire standards. And that was important to them uh, because a lot of the people who are going to be coming were not kind of like your mainstream nine to five American family uh, stereotype. These were kind of like loners and uh, uh, people who cared about libertarianism so radically uh, that they would move across the country, abandoning whatever sort of situation they were already in. Um, to, to just kind of uh, come in. And so these tended to be folks who had not kind of built ties within existing communities. So, so you, you've had this um, scouting party of libertarians go into New Hampshire. Um, it is amusing to think of them rolling around in this van talking about libertarian ideas and it is true, like what they needed was a place that was going to be welcoming to what is a stereotype, but this is a stereotype that has some, apparently every libertarian, I, I have met so few libertarians who don't fall into <laughs> a kind of uh, category of like, um, they're mostly men, right? Correct. They Check. are interested in alternative lifestyles of various kinds. Check. Right. <laughs> uh, they don't like nine to five. Correct. Jobs. Mm -hmm. 
Um, they often affect headgear. I don't know if you've 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 had that experience, <laughs> oh, oh. <laughs> but they seem to be interested in hats of various kinds. Like that's, I don't know. Like they wear a lot of hats, like literally. Um, I don't know what that's about, but you know, when I've been to like reason conventions, there's lots of fedoras about. <laughs> um, and yes, they also do this thing. Uh, which you mentioned in the book, which is they what when they talk about libertarianism, it tends not to be the um, kind where you might want to be like, hey, we don't want to live in a police state, right? Freedom of the press is awesome. Let's all agree. Freedom of the press and, and you know, hands off our stuff. They mm-hmm. kind of go straight from that to like, and pedophilia should be legal. <laughs> <laughs> Do you know what I mean? Like, it's they, there's a real, like, desire almost to, like, just tell people, like, this is the thing we believe. We are the, believe in these very, I don't know what, what it is, but, but that's the kind of person that they were, well, I don't think, know if they intended to attract. That's just the kind of people that were interested in this project. Yeah, I mean, th- this was uh, very much kind of like the, the fringe of the fringe within the libertarian movement. Um, so I'm sure there are some like reasonable, well-reasoned libertarians out there. But like, yeah, I feel like these are the folks who, you know, they say they want to live a free life, but it seems like what they really want to do is they want to argue about whatever the next most restrictive policy is, right? And, and, and that's why they're going to pedophilia, right? Because they don't actually want to just live their lives um, they want to fight over individual freedoms, it, it seems like. <laughs> and also, I, I should say, I don't think they, they are fans of pedophilia necessarily. It is just this rhetorical position of, I believe in this extreme thing, you should believe in it too. I really want to get on a message board about it. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's, well, yeah. It's kind of like a perfect... Um, uh, framing for mansplaining. Isn't yes. It? <laughs> yes, yes, it is. And, you know, I mean, I have met, you know, I, some of my best friends are libertarian. You know, I am a, I was interested in politics sort of in a, in a very, you know, wide, wide lens in college. So I hung out with a lot of libertarians and they have this type. They're always very, very interesting to engage with. And this book was so interesting to imagine like all these friends of mine from college being just like sucked up into a UFO and having to go to the middle of nowhere to live the life they say they want to live, which is kind of what happened with these experimenters in the Freetown project. Yeah, it's kind of like one of the um, components that I feel like is part of the the libertarian ideal is, you know, they, they cite Thoreau a lot, you know, just, just kind of like this idea of like somebody living completely independently in kind of like a frontier-like setting. And one of the things that happens in Grafton is that there's kind of the, like a self-fulfilling prophecy in that the more they kind of uh, push government away and promote this idea of independent living, the more there's kind of like natural dangers that they, in fact, have to grapple with. And many of them did not grapple with those dangers particularly well. Uh, And bears were kind of like the, the shining example of that. And you have a little bit of fun with the libertarian ethos of logic. 
in the book, I think. Which is to say that libertarianism is a is a philosophy that lives so well in the message boards in the binary form, you know, when you are just arguing pure logic. But then you get down on the ground and it turns out not everything goes according to your logical plan. Yeah, I cite some studies in the book that have shown that libertarians are actually more logical than Democrats or okay, Republicans. Okay, I, I have a question about that, actually, right off the bat. Does, are they actually more logical or are they just bigger fans of logic? Because I think that might be a distinction. Oh, what an interesting question and distinction uh, that I do not have at, uh, well, you know, I, they were um, like personality tests, personality assessments. So I don't think they were just like checking a box. I think they were actually um, being measured for. See, I think, I think <laughs> they love logic, but to a certain degree, like you can't say they're, they're actually logical because they're, lo- because what their vision of logic is. You know, for instance, in a logical analysis of wanting to promote your your project of a libertarian town, you might not want to put in the write up that you're in favor of bum fights and <laughs> in, in favor of legalizing meth. Like you wouldn't want to put that out there logically. <laughs> that seems like a bad idea. But so I, I mean, I don't know. Like you're the one who read the studies, but. I do feel like <laughs> that you say, but, th- but let's get back to the point. They think of themselves as logical. They come to this town. They're going to set up the town logically. But what mm-hmm. happens? Um, yeah, they, they also, the, the same tests and studies and assessments showed that they are kind of like less good at getting along with people. You know, that they're more loners. They're more like isolated and they're less happy. Um and it turns out that those other things are perhaps more important than logic. Um, uh, and so the, they came in, uh, they did what they could to undermine the town's services and taxes and regulations. Uh, they didn't literally outnumber the original Grafton residents but they found enough sympathetic ears and uh, voting allies on issues like, um, you know, lowering taxes and cutting regulations that they were able to have a really dramatic impact. And I think even more so than the rules that they successfully implemented, it was just kind of like their presence and the culture that they brought to the town um, really kind of changed things. And so, you know, the town is turning off streetlights permanently because it doesn't want to pay for the electricity to uh, uh, light the streets anymore. It's cutting back on vital services like road maintenance. Uh, the, they, they've got one full-time police officer in Grafton who was also the police chief, and he had to get up at a town meeting and tell people that he had been unable to do his job effectively for a period of months because he couldn't afford needed repairs to his cruiser. So I'm just going to jump um, in again uh, and point yeah. out, there's some stuff about this that's not logical. <laughs> like, <laughs> <laughs> well, I mean, the, the human brain is such a mess. Can we agree? Yes, yes, that? yes, yes. I, I completely uh, agree. Uh, 
logic is almost always just kind of like aspirational. Yeah. And I just think it's one of those things. See, what I think the libertarian thing is, is they aspire to logic and have it as a value. Um, and I also think in the sense that when we talk about um, if they're more or less logical than other folks, they are less likely to bring into account fuzzy variables. You know, like that's that I feel like is what the libertarian logic looks like is if it can't be quantified and if it has to do with like emotions and like sentiment, they'll just be like, well, that doesn't really matter. Yeah. And we also all know these kind of like annoying people who um, won't see any compromise or points or make any concessions to those fuzzy variables. Right. Yeah. It's kind of like it works, but it only works in an all or nothing proposition. And so you know, uh, I can't work with you to create a utopia because it's got to look exactly like I have it envisioned or else the whole thing goes off the rails. And of course, that's not the way life works. If you'll bear with us, we're going to have some ads. Maybe you haven't always thought of socks as the perfect gift or the perfect way to give back. But actually, Bomba's socks were made to give. Literally, because for every pair of socks that Bombas sells, they donate a pair to someone experiencing homelessness across the U.S. And Bombas are specially engineered to be the most comfortable pair of socks you or anyone on your gift list has ever worn. They've thought about every detail. No seams to itch. The colors are fun. The fabric is thick and stretchy, but not confining. They also make the only no-show socks I've ever worn that are both actually no-show and, you know, don't slide down around your heel. Bombas come in tons of styles, including athletic performance socks, limited edition holiday socks, dress socks, and socks made from merino wool, a natural fiber that's warm, incredibly soft, and naturally moisture-wicking. The generosity of Bombas customers has allowed them to donate over 40 million pairs of socks and counting through their nationwide network of over 3,000 giving partners. Bombas socks are also 100% backed for life. If you or anyone you give them to aren't happy with them, just reach out to their customer happiness team who will issue an exchange or refund. From comfort to kindness and everything in between, Bombas aren't just givable, they were made to give. Go to bombas.com slash friends today and get 20% off your first order. That's bombas, B-O-M-B-A-S dot com slash friends, bombas.com slash friends. I suppose there are people who don't like being in bed but I do not understand them. I love bed. I love working in bed, reading in bed, watching TV in bed, and sleeping in bed. So I want my sheets to be amazing, and I can report I have found some amazing sheets. Brooklinen. I have now been spoiled by the linen ones I bought a few years ago that started out super soft and now, after years of washing, are just about the softest sheets I have ever experienced. Brooklinen was started by Rich and Vicky, who also tried to find beautiful home essentials that didn't cost an arm and a leg. When they couldn't, they founded Brooklinen as the first direct-to-customer bedding company. They work directly with manufacturers to make luxury available directly to you without luxury-level markups. I personally think that sheets make a great gift. Like I said, who does not love bed? But you can get more than just high-quality sheets from them. You can take care of your whole Christmas list if you want to. They have robes, towels, pillows, art, and other gifty things like plants and coffee table books. Don't wait. 
do something nice for yourself or someone else, go to brooklinen.com and use promo code FRIENDS to get 10% off your first order and free shipping. That's brooklinen, B-R-O-O-K-L-I-N-E-N.com and enter promo code FRIENDS for 10% off your first order plus free shipping. Brooklinen.com, promo code FRIENDS. So I don't drink. And I talk about that a lot because being sober has made my life awesome. What I don't talk about is how hard it is to find stuff to drink. Now, obviously, there are drinks, but being sober makes it hard to find things. You don't just gulp down like Coke or Kool-Aid. Mocktails can be great, but a lot of the time they're basically juice and sugar. But recently, my husband and I discovered Ken Euphorics. First of all, Everything they make tastes great. And each drink is more than just a single flavor. It's like a good wine. They're complicated flavors with layers. So you want to sip them and not gulp them. Kenyu forks also are more than what they don't have in them. They're about what they do have in them. Think adaptogenic herbs and mushrooms that help curb stress in the moment and over time, as well as nootropics that support cognitive functions like clarity, memory, and creativity. There's three flavors. High Road is a herbaceous flavor, a feeling of lifted mind and relaxed body. It's great for happy hour, social hour, Zoom happy hour, I guess. Add a splash of club soda or tonic with a squeeze of lime. It's refreshing, but doesn't give you a jittery kick like a caffeinated drink would. Kin Spritz is a sparkling Campari-like brain boost without the crash. You want the feel of a bottomless brunch, but with no hangover, this is the thing for you. And there is Dream Light. This is my absolute favorite. I drink it almost every night. It is a booze-free nightcap that tastes like cloves and spices and amaretto. You can drink it over ice or make it as a hot toddy. It is intended to be a bedtime sip. I have a glass as I'm winding down for the night, and it encourages the good kind of sleep, not the, you know, passed out sleep you get from booze. We've worked out a special deal for With Friends Like These podcast listeners. Receive 15% off plus free shipping on your order. Go to kenuforix.com slash friends or use code friends at checkout. That's K-I-N-E-U-P-H-O-R-I-C-S dot com slash friends for 15% off and free shipping. Imagine bold, naturally aged Tillamook cheddar slices melting over a burger Eating handfuls of thick-cut cheddar shreds straight from the bag. Taking a bite out of an irresistibly bold block of extra sharp cheddar cheese. (sighs) We know you want to get back to streaming, but wasn't it nice to daydream about cheese for a bit? Tillamook Cheddar. Extraordinary Dairy. Back to the interview. The fireman we we met in your opening excerpt uh, is a staunch libertarian. He's the one who lived there, correct? And he sort of invited the Freetown Project into Grafton, from what I understand. Yes, and he's a he has a you know machine guns, and he doesn't want to call the police about the bear. But interesting note, he's also very anti wildfire, which is a something you shouldn't have to say about somebody. <laughs> <laughs> He's taken the very controversial anti-wildfire position within the within the libertarian community. <laughs> Apparently, it was correct. Well, so no, I shouldn't say anti-wildfire. He took the pro prevention of wildfire position. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> that that's right. Yeah, I mean, at his heart, you know, that guy John Babiars is 
more practical uh, than most of the Freetowners that he uh, kind of invited into the town. So he has a foot in the real world in that like he runs a successful uh, software business or, you know, internet connection business. And he also uh, was firefighter and eventually rises to the ranks of fire chief. And so like he understands the dangers of fire, right? And it literally (laughs) brings him into conflict with some libertarians. That's right. That's right. Yeah, there's this really um, funny scene unfolds in the book where you have some libertarians who have an illegal campfire set up uh, that they're using to uh, cook food on a work site. And the fire authorities uh, notice this, tell them to put out the campfire. They refuse to do it, uh, despite it being a high da- fire danger day. And John Babiars, in his role with the fire department, is called in to enforce fire codes against his fellow libertarians. And it gets uh, ugly. To me, that's, that's obviously like that's sort of the tragedy of the Grafton experiment, you know, in one scene, right? Is that if you have no rules and some people break them in order to not die, <laughs> like... You have to come in and, and, and in order to not put other people at risk, you have to have some force come in that is outside of yourself, you know, outs- and, and make a change. And it's just amazing to me, like, the thing... I was just going to say, yeah, there's this, like, bizarre fetishistic belief that the free market will resolve everything. So, like, in the libertarian philosophy... People who start dangerous fires will eventually be held to account through lawsuits from the property damage that they cause, and then they'll be more careful about fires, right? Like after they burn down the town, they'll be held accountable, and then uh, somehow that will root out all of the uh, irresponsible fire starters. And it's also very difficult sometimes to kind of like track the responsibility and, and, you know, uh, bears are actually another good example of that. If you train a bear to be dangerous, and then that bear goes wanders over to your neighbor, uh, or you know you start a fire irresponsibly and, and create a dangerous fire situation, and the fire goes over to your neighbor's property, you can't always uh, uh, hold the person who is at fault accountable, and certainly the free market doesn't. And I want to talk about the bears. I said we talk about the bears. The bears are very important. But I think there, there's a little bit more of context I, I just thought of that we should get in there, which is there's a historical rhyming quality to the Free Town Project when it comes to Grafton. You stumbled upon sort of a uh, longstanding example of American tax avoidance. In this little New Hampshire hamlet, in this little New Hampshire hamlet, that it's it's I mean it's both typical in the sense that Americans hate paying taxes, but also unusual in the depth of the history there. That Grafton was primed for kind of a libertarian takeover in a way. Yeah, absolutely. I was really really fascinated when I started to delve into the town's history, and I realized that some of their earliest documents in this town from the 1700s was basically 
telling the newly formed Continental Congress that they didn't want to have to pay taxes. And uh, that sentiment ran so deeply that uh, at one point, they literally voted to secede from the colonies, or yeah, for, from the newly formed United States, so that they could join the state of Vermont, which at that time was an independent republic. And uh, that scheme was only averted after General George Washington threatened that he was going to turn his armies away from the British and come and destroy <laughs> uh, uh, Grafton and Vermont and yeah, the others who were kind of supportive of the scheme. Well, you know, for some people uh, in Grafton and in New Hampshire, and I suppose in other places to a lesser degree, the United States government is always going to feel like an invading force. Like that's Darth Vader's dark empire. And they are the resistance, the freedom fighters who are just not going to kowtow to, to this kind of uh, mothership force. And, you know, it can get very mean spirited and it is very, uh, I feel like wrapped up much more in the personality of the person than in any real principles. And I think where you land up, you know, where you end is if people aren't going to pay taxes and support public services, their neighbors, and sometimes they themselves are going to suffer dramatically. You draw a parallel between Grafton and a nearby town, Canaan, to, to make this point that it you can be a Yankee town and not have this um, streak of real, I'm just going to call it selfishness, actually, when it comes to Grafton, because it is about keeping their money. Is that, that is the, I want my money for myself, seems to be the sentiment. Uh, That's right. We, and, we don't want to give a tax break to blind people, because what if a lot of rich blind people move to town? An actual <laughs> argument that is made in the book. Yes. <laughs> if we let a blind person not pay taxes, then all the blind people will move here. But currently, yeah. population of blind millionaires in Grafton is? <laughs> Zero. Zero. Okay. Um, but so you compare it to Canaan. Mm -hmm. uh, explain what, what we can learn from that comparison. Yeah, basically, over the centuries, Canaan has always, yeah, and I should say Canaan, uh, like every other small town, is thrifty. You know, that, that's part of the Yankee heritage is nobody is a spendthrift. Uh, no, nobody's uh, sporging on insane luxuries. But Canaan has always been just a little bit more willing uh, to support things like fire services and police services. And Canaan and Grafton 200 years ago, or I should really say about 150 years ago, had roughly the same population and they were neighbors. You know, they're side by side. They were in kind of like the same exact spot. Uh, but then because Canaan was spending a little bit more, uh, it was able to grow a population. Whereas Grafton's philosophy was, let's keep taxes low and that will grow our population. And that essentially just did not work in Grafton. So Canaan today is triple the size that it was 150 years ago. Grafton is the same size that it was 150 years ago. And the really ironic shoot yourself in the foot uh, uh, feature of that is that because Canaan has more people, it's able to 
keep tax rates lower to get better services because more people are paying into the pot. Whereas in Grafton, because there are fewer people in a smaller population, uh, they have to pay more to get the same amount of services. We will pause for a break to hear from our sponsors. I love breakfast kind of in general. If I could eat breakfast at every meal, I would. And sometimes I do. And I really like cereal, but I used to have to skip it because so many cereals are fun to eat, but also terrible for you. That is not so with Magic Spoon. Magic Spoon has zero sugar, 11 grams of protein, and only three net carbs in each serving. It's keto-friendly, gluten-free, grain-free, soy-free, and low-carb. I personally am a fan of the honey nut, cinnamon, and peanut butter flavors, and I am super excited to try their limited edition holiday flavor, gingerbread. You can build your very own custom variety box yourself. You can have three of one kind of cereals and one of the other. You can have four different flavors, five different flavors, whatever you want. You can use the flavors that I mentioned or their best-selling cocoa, fruity, frosted, and blueberry flavors. Go to magicspoon.com slash WFLT to build your own custom variety box and try it today. And be sure to use that promo code WFLT at checkout to get free shipping. And Magic Spoon is so confident in their product, it's back with a hundred percent happiness guarantee. If you don't like it for any reason, they will refund your money. No questions asked. That's magicspoon.com slash WFLT and use code WFLT for free shipping. This episode of With Friends Like These is brought to you by Public Goods, the one-stop shop for sustainable, high-quality, everyday essentials made from clean ingredients at an affordable price. Everything from coffee to toilet paper and shampoo to pet food. Public Goods is your new everything store, thoughtfully designed for the conscious consumer. Now, it's sort of weird to buy all that stuff in one place with the same packaging, On the other hand, the packaging is one of the reasons I love their stuff. It's all streamlined, minimal, and it doesn't advertise itself. It's just the thing it is. My husband loves their ramen, and I think their cleaners smell fantastic. Public Goods ethically sources and obsessively develops each of their products to be free of unhealthy ingredients and harmful additives still common on drug and grocery store shelves. They are committed to making their products healthy and safe for humans and animals and the environment. They use a membership model to keep costs low and pass on the savings to their customers. Best of all, you can make your first purchase with no obligation. They plant one tree for every order placed and incorporate sustainability into every part of their company. Join hundreds of thousands of others who have switched to this new everything store. We worked out an exclusive deal for with friends like these listeners. Receive $15, that's $15 off your first public goods order with no minimum purchase. That's right. They are confident you will come back, so they're giving you $15 to spend on your first purchase. You have nothing to lose. Just go to publicgoods.com slash friends and use friends at checkout. That is P-U-B-L-I-C-G-O-O-D-S dot com slash friends to receive $15. That's $15 off your first order. And now the rest of the show. So I promise we get back to the bears. And this is a good point to get back to the bears because the lack of services is the inflection point of the bear crisis. That's right. That's right. Uh, So you basically... Uh, picture that Grafton now, as we flash forward a few years, has become the site of an 
but like a ragged chain of armed camps that have emerged in the wilderness where people are living in cabins and tents and yurts and mobile homes. And they are uh, each managing their food storage in their own, you know, free, free liberty individual way. Uh, and they're each managing their own food waste stream in their own way. And as a result, uh, what the bears come to realize is that every home off in the woods is kind of like a puzzle box. And it's got calories that they just have to figure out how to unlock. These bears start to apply their fearsome intelligence uh, and their claws to all of these tempting food opportunities. And the Graftonites are also repelling bears each in their own way, right? So some of them are just shouting at them and uh, chasing them off. Some people are throwing firecrackers at their heads. Some people are setting booby traps that will inflict pain on the bears. Some are using electrified fences. Some are putting cayenne pepper in their garbage. And so they are also teaching the bears that uh, there are hurdles that might have to be endured in the pursuit of these calories. But this is like a Princeton review class for bears, basically. <laughs> That's right. They're giving right. all these different word problems, right? <laughs> all these different logic puzzles. And basically each logic puzzle is needs to be solved in a different way. So they're developing all these different kinds of intelligence. And if people think we're talking, be giving bears a little too much credit, you have a lot of evidence in the book that bears are really smart and that they've co-evolved in our modern world with us to, to do these things, to solve human problems. That's absolutely right. Yeah, no, they, uh, they can count to like uh, 13 uh, that they, uh, they just, they've got a lot going on. They, they can picture how they look to the people that they're interacting with and kind of like try to modify their behavior and appearance accordingly. They know how to hide. Uh, they, that's one of the weird things in here is that they know to avoid lights. Yes. Yeah, right, right. Because they understand that when a, a light is on them, that they're more visible to a human, which a lot of animals don't. A lot of animals, you know, you, you put, turn a spotlight on a deer and it just famously stares there staring into the light because it doesn't get that connection. But a bear knows. Two intentional things. One is that if you're having a bear problem in most parts of the country, you call fish and game or wildlife officials and they will come in and help you sort it out and kind of assess what's going on. Uh, but if you're in Grafton and you don't believe in government inter intervention, you're certainly not going to call fish and game. You're, you're going to try to sort this out on your own. The other thing is that... Uh, a lot of people in Grafton were intentionally feeding the bears just for the joy of watching them eat. There's one uh, story in the book that uh, a lot of people have really, uh, it's really resonated with people. Uh, there are basically these two uh, elder women uh, neighbors living side by side uh, on a hill in the woods. Uh, they're not Freetowners, they're longtime Graftonites, uh, at least one of which has some libertarian leanings. And one of them has been terrified of the bears and to the extent where she literally cannot leave her house without doing like a bear check. And if she smells like meat because she's just cooked, 
she will not leave the house at all because she's just so sure that a bear is going to tackle her. Um, meanwhile, her neighbor has been feeding the bears for 10 years <laughs> and is going out every day with buckets of grain with sugared donuts on top. Uh, and she wanted to remain anonymous, so uh, we call her Donut Lady. And Donut Lady has this very special relationship with the bears uh, where it progresses to the point where when she's going out with her buckets of grain and donuts, they are waiting for her in a pack at their kind of prearranged feeding place. And she is like shooing them away as if they're like dogs crowding the, the dinner plate, you know, like, go, go away, go away. And they're all around her. And I asked her at one point, like, you know, weren't you afraid that you would fall because she was doing this in the winter? And she said, um, oh, yeah, I fell down all the time. It was fine. Well, yeah, and- I guess if, if they're smart <laughs> enough to, to figure out all the other things we're talking about, they're smart enough to not to kill the golden goose, right? Yeah. So, so you know, you have, you have various people feeding the bears intentionally. And that, of course, is creating or adding uh, to the bear's sense that humans, you know, yeah, sure, they might be annoying and throw firecrackers at you sometimes. But ultimately, they're pretty, they're pretty good eggs. Well, although we should note that so one of the things at the very beginning here is that historically, at least, conventional thinking, although the bears of Grafton challenged some conventional thinking or conventional wisdom, conventional wisdom is that bears don't attack cats, number one. That's the first story you start out with. Correct. Right? And that bears don't attack humans. But in Grafton... <laughs> That's right. Uh, so uh, ever since pioneer days, uh, the bears in the state of New Hampshire had been like beaten back uh, so that there had not been a bear attack in the state of New Hampshire for at least 100 and maybe 150 years. Uh, but in Grafton, several years after the Freetown Project began to work its magic... Uh, Grafton became the site of the first bear attack in living memory. Um, And before the book concludes, there is a second attack that is not in Grafton, but it's within a bear's territory of Grafton. Uh, And in the time since the book has been published, there's been a third attack also within spitting distance of Grafton. Um, And so this is like a, a cluster of bear attacks that's very unique to the state and very unique to, to the history of the region. Um, so there's a lack of infrastructure, lack of inclination to get for help from authorities. Um, I would suggest also a little bit of a lack of just um, neighborly kind of um, pulling together. Even Because even when the bears attacks, attacks start, there's not like, oh, we should do something this as a group, right? Yeah, there's a real kind of like blame the victim mentality. Uh, that that is just kind of like yeah you know, human nature I think uh, the 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 venal side of human nature, um, but also you know some of the effects that the town suffered uh, just kind of all spoke to kind of like an unraveling of the social fabric. So you know like recycling rates went down, the number of registered sex offenders went up, neighbor complaints skyrocketed. Uh, the town had not had any uh, murders in living memory but it saw its first homicide when somebody over an argument about uh, uh, whether or not they were a freeloader shot their roommate. And then that was followed immediately by the second homicide in living memory when that same guy shot his other roommate, (laughs) same dispute. 
uh, ironies upon ironies, it wasn't the bears that undid the Freetown project. It was other libertarians. <laughs> That's right. Spoiler. Um, yeah, no, the um, Grafton, a lot of people were kind of like moving into Grafton. Maybe they would stay there for a few years as part of the Freetown project. And maybe they would stay, but maybe they would move on. But so there was kind of like this constant influx of new fresh faces that, that kind of kept the Freetown project strong. But then in 2016, uh, there was a much larger social experiment called the Free State Project that is not affiliated, but is essentially the same idea, but on a, a statewide level and employed in a more um, kind of professional way. <clears throat> and so as soon as the Free State Project was triggered, all of the libertarians in the country were invited to move to the state uh, rather than specifically the town of Grafton. And so that uh, influx of libertarians became diffused where libertarians could now choose to try to work towards their utopia uh, in Grafton or in other towns. And why would they choose Grafton? <laughs> it's a shithole. <laughs> it's a shithole. It's, it's got bears everywhere. There's bears and no one picks up the garbage. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. Yeah, they're, they're, they're looking at another, uh, there's a, yeah, another town like Keene. Well, sure, the taxes are a little higher, but they've got parks. And no right? bears. <laughs> they've got no bears. <laughs> so I, I want to wind, wind this up because you mentioned 2016 and, and larger social experiment when most people hear of that group of words together. 2016, larger social experiment. They might think of the the Donald Trump administration, the Donald Trump, you know, presidency, uh, election and presidency. One of the most fascinating things about your book, to me, is that it takes place roughly in this period of, of you know, rising Trumpism from before, you know, during the Obama administration to, you know, Trump's election. And there's not, national politics doesn't really make much of a of a noise in the context of the book, but my question for you, or it, 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 your book, isn't about national politics in the kind of way that we think of national politics when it shows up on the on the front page of the New York Times, right? But my question to you is: Your book really about national politics? Is it a reflection of national politics, even though we don't read the names that we might might normally see? <laughs> Uh, I've never been asked that question before. That, that's a great question. And I suppose what I would say is that um, I would hope people would look at my book as a parable or kind of like a, a, a microcosm so we can extrapolate um, what might happen if our country were to fully embrace this idea of no taxes, no rules, uh, uh, take your mask mandate and shove it up your ass type attitude. <laughs> um, uh, you know, I don't have to wonder what happens if America goes further down that path, uh, because to me, what happened in Grafton is kind of like a perfect example. Like to me, that's that's the future. It's one possible future uh, uh, of the country. Well. <laughs> <laughs> Um, just COVID instead of bears, really. Yeah, it's a choose-your-own-adventure, yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, 
Um, thank you so much for coming on the show. Uh, the book was a delightful read, and I, I'm looking forward to seeing what my libertarian friends think of it. Anna, I had so much fun uh, anytime, and thank you so much. We were talking to Matthew Hongold's Hetling, and his book is A Libertarian Walks Into a Bear, The Utopian Plot to Liberate an American Town and Some Bears. I really highly recommend this. It's a quick read that is both escapist and relevant because today's Trump Republicans have the same desire to starve civic resources and turn people against each other. And who knows, maybe bears could get involved as well. So if you want to stop that, go to votesaveamerica.com slash Georgia to learn how you can help folks on the ground turn Georgia super blue. This show is a production of Crooked Media. It is produced by Allison Herrera with assistance from Lily Alexandrov. This episode was engineered by Louis Lino. Our intern, Izzy Margulies, is about to get a promotion. Liam McMahon herds the social media cats. And I am told that Whitney Pastrick has excellent taste in wine. They make this show better and more fun to do. I could not do it without them, and I couldn't do it without you. So, please, take care of yourselves. They say plants like music. Yeah, no, like really, they they respond to the vibrations of it, which means that this playlist you're listening to, the plants are too. You know what else plants like? Organic soil from miracle Grow. It's made with all the best stuff, like wood fiber and compost. Plus, it's OMRI certified organic, which officially means it's made with superior ingredients. And when you give your plants the stuff that makes them happy, they won't judge you on your iffy playlist. Hear that, plants? So go ahead and give them miracle Grow. The living room is where you make life's most beautiful memories. But your sofa shouldn't be the one remembering them. The new life-resistant, high-performance furniture collection from Ashley is designed to withstand all the spills, slip-ups, and muddy paws that come with the best parts of life. Ashley high-performance sofas and recliners are soft, on-trend, and easy to clean. Shop the high-performance furniture in-store or online at ashley.com. Ashley, for the love of home.